the, um, the great joy and privilege of my life has been uh, to be your pastor these past 12 years. And uh, for me, it's been a gift from God. And today I am full of gratitude for that gift. And as your pastor, it's uh, been my passion to preach the gospel. And for the final sermon, I want to preach a simple gospel sermon. It's from the gospel of Luke. And in the story, we see what it means to, to know Jesus and to love him. And so if you guys could turn in your bulletins or, or look on the overhead projector, I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It's a really beautiful story, one of my favorite stories. There are so many layers, too many to cover today, but uh, let me read you the story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, this story is about 
who is close to God and who is far from him. And Jesus tells us in the story that it is the good, decent person who is actually far from God. And it is the evil, wicked sinner who is near to him. And I want you to know that that is a bombshell. That is revolutionary. And when you let the truth of that sink into your heart and into your mind, it will utterly transform you. You need to know that when the story was first told, it was shocking. It was scandalous. The problem is that it does not have the same effect on us today. It doesn't have the same bite. And the reason is because the two main people in the story, the two characters, Simon and the woman, mean something completely different to us today. So let me explain a little bit, right? Who are these two characters? So first you have the woman. In verse 37 it says, she was a woman of the city. I want you to know that is a euphemism. That is a polite way to say she was a prostitute. Okay, she was a prostitute. And then Simon, we're told, was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader. And so you have these two people, right? You have a prostitute and you have a Pharisee. And the problem here is that these two people mean they represent something completely different to us today. And if this were to be made into a Hollywood movie, right? If this were to be made into a a Disney Pixar film, the prostitute would be a prostitute with a heart of gold. She would have this very sympathetic backstory and she's working the streets so that she can support her three young children at home. Whereas Simon the Pharisee, we distrust him. We imagine this dark, sinister figure who probably has this secret, hypocritical life. But I want you to know that that is not how the ancient world saw them. And so, can I just translate this story? Can I retell the story in modern terms? So I want you to know first the Pharisees. The Pharisees were deeply respected in their community. They were honored for their piety, for their study of the Torah. They were men of integrity. And so if I could retell the story in modern terms, I want you to imagine a man who is active in the PTA. He coaches his daughter's softball team. He's a lawyer, but he works for a nonprofit. He cares about the environment. He composts. He drives an electric vehicle. He's a pillar in his community. We admire this man. We want him as our neighbor. We would trust him to watch our kids. But the prostitute. I want you to know that in the ancient world, she would have been universally reviled. She would have been seen as someone who destroys the bonds of community, who preys upon the weakness of others. She would have been seen as an evil person. And so I want you to imagine um, a drug dealer who intentionally targets young children. Or I want you to imagine a cold-blooded killer 
who murders and harms without any remorse. I want you to imagine just the embodiment of evil. And so you have these two characters, right? A cold-blooded killer and a man who volunteers at his daughter's school. And what Jesus and what the story is asking us is who is closer to God? Who knows the Lord? And when the answer shocks you, repulses you, then you are hearing Jesus the way his contemporaries did. You are truly listening to Jesus as his original hearers did. I want you to know that this is foundational. You have to understand who these two characters are, what they represent, the typecast that they represent, before you can understand the rest of the story. So I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at the banquet. Then number two, we're going to look at the parable. And then finally, we're going to look at what does Jesus mean when he says your sins are forgiven. So first, the banquet. In the banquet uh, setting, Simon and the woman are being contrasted. Because they each have very different emotional responses to Jesus. Simon is cool and reserved. And the woman, you see this intense devotion. And the reason why they have such different emotional responses, and this is the key, is it has to do with the way that they approach God. You see, Simon, he's interested in Jesus. This is why he invited Jesus to dine with him at his home. He's intrigued by Jesus' teachings. He's curious, but he only wants a conversation. He does not want to lose control. He wants to keep his emotions in check. The woman is completely the opposite. She is overwhelmed with emotion. And she gives herself completely to Jesus. And she is not guarded in any way. And it's worth looking at the details of her response um, in the story. Because the, the text makes a big deal of it. And I want you to notice the lavish display of her devotion. So in the story, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, the woman is standing at Jesus' feet. Or rather, behind his feet. Because you have to understand that in the ancient world, um, they didn't sit down to eat with tables and chairs, but they would have this low-lying table, and then the dinner guests would recline. They would lie down beside the table with one arm propped up on a cushion, and then the other arm they would use to to eat and, and grab food. And then um, uh, their feet would be radiating out away from the table like spokes on a wheel. And so this woman, therefore, is is standing at Jesus' feet, right? Behind his feet. And the text tells us that she begins to weep. And the tears start to flow. And then with her tears, she washes Jesus' feet. It's a very intimate scene. And then she does the most extraordinary thing. She takes her hair to clean Jesus' feet. Now, you, you need to understand, in the ancient world, 
a woman's glory with her hair. It was the most precious thing about her. And in public, a woman would always wear her hair tied up. So, you know, because the environment was so dusty, you wouldn't want any of that getting in the hair. And the only place that a woman would let down her hair is in the privacy of her home. But this woman, she lets down her hair in Simon's house. Everyone gaping in astonishment. And then with her hair, she cleans Jesus' feet. Which would, have the, which would have been this profound act of vulnerability and surrender. It's this incredibly tender and intimate moment. And then she kisses his feet. The feet were the dirtiest part of the body. Particularly in the Middle East where people would walk around all day on dusty roads and sandals. So that by the end of the day, your feet were absolutely disgusting. This is why at table, you would keep the feet as far away from the food as possible. But this woman, she kisses Jesus not upon the cheek, not upon his hands as would have been the custom, but she kisses his feet, which is the lowliest part of Jesus. She stoops down, showing him her abject humility. And then you have the most breathtaking detail of all. It says that she pours ointment on Jesus' feet. The text says that she brought with her an alabaster flask of ointment. Alabaster was a fairly expensive material at the time. It's, It's this kind of soft marble. And so this would have been expensive perfume. Very rare. Very costly. And in that culture where there were no banks... Um, one of the main ways a woman could sort of store uh, her up her wealth is with expensive perfume. And so this bottle almost certainly represented her entire life savings. She pours it out. Not upon his head, as you might expect, but upon Jesus' feet, which magnifies the honor. Because what she's saying is that all that I possess, all that I possess is not worthy, Jesus, of your greatness. And then finally, she is willing to break all social convention to do this. She knows very well she is not welcomed in Simon's home. But she's willing to endure the shame and the scorn. She's willing to pay any price to get near Jesus. I want you to see the extravagant, lavish display of devotion. Now, why does she do this? Jesus tells us she had been listening to Jesus. And as she listened to him, she understood. She understood that her many sins had been forgiven. And the truth of that just cut into her like a knife. And then she is overwhelmed with joy and gratitude because she realizes that God forgives her, that God accepts her, and she is amazed by His grace. And so that's the woman. Now what about Simon? 
Simon is watching this whole scene unfold in his home in absolute horror. Why? Because remember, the woman is a prostitute. Now, it doesn't mean very much to us. We're, again, thinking of a prostitute with a heart of gold. But to all the other dinner guests, she is a vile, notorious sinner who deserves condemnation and scorn. And so Simon's response is basically, Jesus, where is your outrage? Don't you know all the evil things that she has done? You claim to be a prophet. You should know. Why don't you condemn her? Why do you act like you accept her? Now, why is Simon so upset? It has to do with the way that he approaches God. He relates to God not as someone who has been forgiven, but he relates to God as somebody with an exemplary moral record. He relates to God on the basis of his virtue, on the basis of his moral life. And therefore, Simon believes that he is close to God, that he is acceptable He is accepted by God. And then this woman, by that same standard, must be far from him and rejected by him. And so Simon is saying in the story, Jesus, why do you, if you are a prophet of God, why do you act like God accepts her? Explain yourself. Explain yourself. And this leads me to the second point, the parable. In response... Jesus tells a story. I want you to know this story is absolutely brilliant because it seems to go along with what Simon believes. Right? It takes Simon's assumptions, but then in the middle, there's this dramatic twist so that in the end, everything is turned upside down. So let's look at the story. It's a fantastic story. Jesus says there was a certain moneylender, a creditor, who, um, who had two debtors who, owned him, who owed him money. One uh, debtor owed him an enormous sum of money, 500 denarii. Uh, a denarii is a day's wages, so we're talking roughly two years of income. It's an enormous sum of money. And then the other debtor owed him a much more modest sum of 50 denarii. Okay, so this is 10x difference. One owes ten times what the other owes. And so you have these two debtors, Jesus says. You have one with an enormous amount of debt, and then one who owes a small amount of debt. Now this perfectly captured Simon's worldview. Because if you think of sin as a debt, every time you sin, every time you break one of God's moral laws, you are accruing debt. Do you understand? And then the more you sin, the more you break the rules, the deeper in debt you go. And therefore, Simon said, the one who has the smaller debt must be closer to God because he has less debt to work off. He is closer to breaking even. And then the one who owes the big debt, the big debtor, is far, far from God because he will never be able to pay God back. So imagine that you have two friends and they both owe you money. One friend owes you $20 for dinner. 
You're meeting up with him. He forgot to bring his wallet. He says, can you spot me some cash? Cash, you say, no problem. Here's $20. The other friend is constantly borrowing money from you. Constantly. Every week, month after month, they're constantly coming to you. And each time they have a different story, a different excuse... And this goes on and on over the years until at last he owes you tens of thousands of dollars. Now, which of these two friends are you on better terms with? Which of these two friends do you like more? Simon loved this story because... In this story, the woman is the big debtor. She was constantly violating God's rules, constantly. There seemed to be no end to her sins, innumerable sins, big sins. And then in the story, Simon is saying, I am the small debtor. Yes, on occasion I will slip up. You know, maybe I will tell a white lie or I will lose my temper. No one is perfect. But on the whole, I have kept my moral debt at a manageable level. And therefore, doesn't that put me on better terms with God than this prostitute? But Jesus says, wait, I haven't finished the story. So Jesus says, there are two debtors. And then he says, neither debtor could pay. And so the creditor says, I will forgive both debts. I will cancel both debts. And then Jesus says, Simon, which of these two debtors do you think will love the creditor more? In other words, which of these two people, right? The big sinner and the little sinner will love God more when he forgives them. Simon cannot deny the obvious. In verse 43, and notice he's so reluctant to say it. He says, the one I suppose with the bigger debt. And Jesus says, very good, Simon. That is the correct answer. Do you see what Jesus has done? He's completely flipped the results. He's completely reversed the results. Simon thought... That the small debtor is closer to God and he is the small debtor. And he thought the woman being the big debtor is far from God. But what Jesus is saying is it's, it's exactly the opposite. Let's go back to the illustration. You have two friends. They both owe you money. And so you say to both of them, I forgive your debts. Now, the friend who owes you tens of thousands of dollars is overcome with emotion. And he says to you, you don't know what this means to me. You don't know what a burden, how much stress this has been on me. And he's hugging you. He's kissing you. He's saying to you over and over again, thank you. Thank you. He's jumping up and down with joy. But what about your other friend, the friend who owes you $20? You say to him, your debt is forgiven. And your friend says, "Uh, thanks. 
because it's not that big a deal. Nothing to get emotional about. What does that mean for us? I want you to know this is revolutionary. Because what Jesus is saying, please listen to me, is that if you want to get close to God, you must love him as a big debtor. You have to realize that before God, you are a big debtor. You are a big time sinner. And you have to identify with the violent criminal in prison. And you have to see that there is no fundamental difference between you two. Only circumstance. Only life circumstance. But the same evil heart, the same selfish motive lies within you both. But if your self-image is that you are a good and decent person, you know, you're not perfect, but you are a good person. And that's the way you see yourself. And that's the way you want others to see you. And then if you come to God like that, with your small debtor love, what Jesus is saying is that God will reject you. That's what he's saying. God will reject you. I know that sounds astonishing, but look at the story. In the story, Jesus turns to the woman, and what does he say? Does he condemn her? Does he say, why did you rack up so much debt? You should be ashamed of yourself. No, he praises her. He says, this is good. This is beautiful. This is right. And then he says to Simon, what you have done is not right. It is not good. He condemns Simon. Some of you might be saying, I don't understand Are you saying it is wrong to be a small debtor? Is there no advantage in keeping your debt small? Does it not matter how much you sin? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying something far more mind-bending. He's saying there is no such thing as a small debtor. But, but, But Jesus says small debtor in the story... How can there be no small debtor? Yes, he's not saying the story as reality truly is, right? As God sees it, he's telling the story as Simon sees it. He's using Simon's categories. And this is what makes the story so brilliant and subversive because he's using Simon's categories. Because think about it, right? If there truly is such a thing as a small debtor, and Simon would be such a small debtor, then would it not be reasonable and fair for Simon to love little? Right? The woman is all emotional and intense because she has been forgiven much. Simon is cool and composed, but it's proportional because he has been forgiven little. If you forgive a friend and then you expect some big emotional display, the problem is with you, not your friend. You are being unreasonable. 
But is that what Jesus is saying? No. Because look at the story, right? There's that whole dialogue section near the end where Jesus basically says, Simon, why didn't you get all emotional over me? Why didn't you hug and kiss me and cry over me and pour perfume on me? And you know, in the story, it doesn't tell us how Simon responds, but we can sort of imagine the conversation, right? Simon is saying, in his mind at least, you got to be kidding me. Jesus, you want me to kiss your feet? You want me to let down my hair for you? And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I do. What is Jesus saying? I want you to think through the implications. He is saying, there is no such thing as a small debtor. That is a false category. It's a made-up category. There are only big debtors. And Simon is a big debtor too. Now, the question you're asking might be, how can Simon be a big debtor? Or to put it another way, how can a good, decent person, and think about a man who volunteers at his daughter's school, a pillar of the community, how can that person be the moral equivalent, the moral equal of a serial murderer sitting on death row? And the answer is not in the story but you have to read the rest of the gospel of Luke and when you read throughout the gospel of Luke you see that there are actually two ways to be a debtor you can be a debtor by breaking all of God's moral rules and you can be a debtor by keeping all of God's moral rules the prostitute accrued debt by breaking all the rules and Simon also amassed debt by breaking all the rules. It has to do with how you define sin. Is sin simply the breaking of rules, transgressing God's laws? And the answer is no. This story makes no sense at all unless you understand this crucial point. And here it is. The Bible defines sin as asserting your independence from God. Sin is not putting God at the center of your life where He deserves to be because He is your Creator. He gave your life, but instead it's putting your own desires and interests at the center and then it's pushing God to the side. Now there are two ways that you can do this, two ways to be independent from God. You can break free from God by breaking all of His rules and treating His rules as sort of unreasonable impositions and restrictions upon your life. And you can also break free from God by keeping all of his rules. Not because you love him and trust him, but sort of to get him off your back. So that he has no claim on you. So that you don't need his mercy. In Luke 15, you see this in the parable of the prodigal son which is terribly named because there are two sons and they're both lost. And in this story, the younger son runs away from the father and he spends all of the money on wild living. 
And then you have the older son who stays with the father. He works hard, but he's like seething with entitlement and resentment. And the point of the story is that both sons do not love their father. They actually both want their father dead. They're just using their father for his money. The younger son does it overtly and explicitly. He grabs the money and he runs. But the older son is more subtle about it because he stays, he works hard, but he's only doing it for the inheritance. And Jesus says, what's the difference? What's the difference? They are both far from the father. They are both using the father. And so what Jesus here is saying, and he says it all throughout the gospel of Luke and throughout the gospels, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you are a good religious person like Simon or whether you're an irreligious criminal person like this woman. You're both lost. You're both a big debtor before God. The Bible tells us our greatest problem, humanity's greatest problem, is that we bear an enormous debt before God and we cannot pay him back. And that leads me to the third point, Jesus forgives sins. In verse 48, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone in the room is stunned. And in verse 49, they say, who is this who even forgives sins? What is Jesus saying? He is saying, I am the third character in the parable. Remember, there are two characters, right? You have the one who owes a big debt, and then the one who owes a small debt. But there's a third character in the parable who is the creditor. And Jesus is saying, I am the creditor who forgives the debt. Now, first of all, that is a claim to divinity. Okay, Only God can forgive such sins. But the second thing I want to focus on is when Jesus says, I forgive your debts, I want you to understand what that means. I want you to think about how debt works. Debt does not just disappear into thin air. But when debts are forgiven, the creditor has to absorb the debt. The creditor has to pay the cost of the debt. All right, so imagine you are in a position, okay? You are in a position where you say to someone, I forgive your debt of $100,000, Imagine you are truly in a position where you can truly say that to someone. The only way you could say that to someone is that it would have to come at tremendous cost to yourself. Because what that would mean is that either you had actually lent them $100,000 of your own money, or this person has caused $100,000 in damages to you or to your property. And therefore, whatever the reason is, right, the only way you can forgive such a debt is that it would come at tremendous cost to yourself. Because either you would lose the money, 
or you would have to pay for the damages yourself, right? Ultimately, you bear the cost. Do you understand? When Jesus says, I forgive your debts, the only way he could say that is that it would come at tremendous cost to himself. And I want you to understand that your debts, my debts, is not a small thing. Do you remember Jesus says to Simon, why aren't you getting all emotional over me? You are acting inappropriately. You're acting like you have, your debts are small. You're wrong, Simon. Your debts are enormous. You're in the same position as the prostitute. We are all in the same position. And therefore, when Jesus says, I forgive your debts, the cost was death on a Roman cross. The cost was infinite suffering and agony and separation from the Father. That's what it cost Jesus. And if your response to that is, oh, that's nice. If your response is that you're not really moved by the sacrificial love of Jesus, then either you don't really believe you have moral debts before God, or you think that your debts on the whole is rather small. If someone forgives you of a debt of $20, you would say, oh, that's nice. It's not that big a deal. It's not worth getting emotional about because you could just pay them back. They have no claim over you. Do you understand? But if someone forgives your debt of a million dollars, suppose you owe, I don't know why you're owing a million dollars, okay? But suppose you owe a million dollars and you are now facing financial ruin. And you have to remember in the ancient world, when you owed a debt that enormous, that would mean imprisonment and enslavement, okay? And somebody comes along and pays off your debt. You would say to him, you saved my life. I owe you my life. Do you think your debt before God is merely a million dollars? 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul writes, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. God paid an infinite price in the death of his son. Do you understand the infinite value of the son? The woman understood. She took all of her life savings and she poured it out upon his feet because she says, all that I have is not worthy of your greatness. I want you to know that this is the secret of the Christian life. To know that you are a big time debtor before God. And to the degree you absorb that, to the degree that it sinks into your heart. You will be amazed at the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you will become transformed and your life will be filled with joy and power.
I would like that to be my final word to you. We have this great treasure in Jesus Christ. It's like we have the Hope Diamond in our pockets. The Hope Diamond is the largest, most valuable diamond in the world. We don't know how much it costs because it's of inestimable value. I believe it's like in the British Royal Treasury or something. It's like we're walking around with the Hope Diamond in our pockets. And every day we're weighed down by the troubles and cares of this life. We're besieged by worries and fears. And we don't realize we have this great treasure in Jesus Christ. If only we would take it out and look upon it. It's been my great privilege to try to communicate that to you for the 12 years. The great treasure of Jesus Christ. I want to thank the congregation for giving me this ministry. treasure in my life, in my family. Let's pray. Almighty God, how can we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus Christ who is the infinite the infinite almighty son the prince of heaven that he should lay down his life for us who owe an inestimable debt because all of us have gone astray All of us have sinned against you, both sins of commission, overt sins, and sins of omissions, the things that we did not do, the devotion and love that we did not give to you. And Lord, I pray that the greatness of this love, the greatness of this treasure would sink into our hearts every day day by day. Let us not be negligent. Let us not be lazy. But let us pursue with all our being and all our heart to know the love of God in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.